as I was singing the song, the last part of the chorus says, and I love you, Lord. I started weeping because for the first time in my life, I could say without any hesitation that from the bottom of my heart, I truly love the Lord. Worship. It's the one activity that is common to all Christian believers. We gather each week all around the world to worship God. But have you ever considered how God uses worship to help a man gain freedom from life-dominating sinful habits? We'll talk about that in today's program, asking the question, what role does worship play in freedom from porn and sexual sin? I'm your host, Jim Lewis. This is Purity for Life. Steve Gallagher gets us started today with a thoughtful discussion about the biblical foundation of worship and why it is essential in the life of every Christian. As the modern song says, you and I were made to worship. But what kind of worshiper does the Lord seek to come before him? And what should that worship look like? I'm joined in the studio today by Steve Gallagher. Pastor Steve Gallagher is founder and president of Pure Life. It's always good to have you here in the studio. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here with you, Jim. We're talking today about the role that worship plays in the life of a man seeking freedom from sexual sin. We have chapel services usually twice a week here on campus, and we have seen the great value that can be derived from spirit-led services where God really shows up. In much of the evangelical church today, worship is about style of music that is offered. And churches have been fighting culture wars between contemporary and traditional worship styles for years. But what I'd like you to do for us today, Pastor, is to look past these superficial concerns and really bring us back to the meaning of worship and the attitude of the heart that makes our expressions of worship pleasing to God. So to get us started, why is worship such an important issue for those struggling with sexual sin? Well, Jim, when I thought about this question, I immediately thought about the opening of my book, Mm. At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry. And let me just read uh, the first few sentences here. Deeply embedded within the heart of man is a spiritual altar. Mm. Every human has the capacity, no, the need, to worship. The objects of that worship are the things or persons which have taken the preeminent position of importance in the person's life. Whatever they may be, they cast their looming shadow over all of the other aspects of his life. It is this position in the human heart that God demands to occupy. And then I go on to... um, share, you know, the great commandment, as Jesus called it out of Deuteronomy 6, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then I go into talking about how people corrupt that uh, that inward need for worship to worship idolatry, you know, different forms of idols, which, of course, this book is regarding sexual idolatry. So, you know, the basis of worship really manifests itself in how we uh, live our lives, what we are devoted to, and what we sing in church should be an outflow of what's going on in our heart throughout the week, you know, just in our daily life. It's not just go to church, sing some songs, and then go back to living a carnal, worldly life. It is an outflow of a love for God. Well, Pastor, take us to the Bible. How does the Bible describe or define worship? It's interesting that the Hebraic term and the Greek term for worship are so similar in what their meaning is. 
uh, shakah is the Hebrew term, and it means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, worship, obeisance, homage to royalty, or in reverence to God. And so you get the sense of not singing songs, but you get the sense of really humbling yourself with someone you consider to be greater than yourself. And the Greek kind of maintains the same idea. Proskuneo uh, means to bow down, to fall upon the knees, and touch one's forehead to the ground as an expression of profound reverence, mm. kneeling or prostration to show respect or make supplication. You know, and you get the same sense of coming to a a person who you consider to be of much greater quality and character than yourself, and you are humbling yourself before that person. That's what the term worship really means. So tell me, how is our lifestyle a manifestation of worship? Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, one of the first times the word worship is used in the Bible is actually in the Ten Commandments. And the Lord starts immediately talking about, you shall not make any idols, and so on. You know, and then he says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Mm. Wow. I mean, what a statement. And so, you know, to serve the idols of the day was a lifestyle. It isn't just a matter of going and bowing down before an idol. You are identifying yourself with that religion. That affected every aspect of your life. If you're one of the um, Baal worshipers in Israel, you're going to be hanging out with Baal worshipers and doing the sorts of things that Baal worshipers do. If you are a worshiper of Jehovah, then you're going to be around the temple or around the tabernacle. That's where you're going to find yourself, and you're going to be with people who are devoted to the God that they serve. And so for us in American life, Worship is very much tied into what we are devoted to. The reality of worship comes forth in your daily life, and it shows forth in the way you live throughout the week. And so if you can go to church on Sunday and sing some songs, but if you aren't truly humbling yourself before God and walking with God, you are not a worshiper of the Lord. Pastor, I've read the Ten Commandments I don't know how many times, but when you read it just then, it really struck me that if you're not worshiping Yahweh your God, then you're a God-hater. It's funny because I had the same experience. As I read it and I finished out that fifth verse, and, and it talks about uh, him visiting in the iniquity you know, of the third and fourth generation and those who hate me. And that's how the Lord sees people who won't worship him. It really is a love or hate deal. One of the problems that we always see with the nation of Israel is while they're called to worship God, they constantly struggle with idolatry. So they would worship the Lord on his day and then be found in other uh, worship places, worshiping Baal and other gods at other times. But don't we really see that today? People who go to church on Sunday, but they're not really worshiping God. They're worshiping everything else but God. Yeah, I mean, and the Lord said through Isaiah to the people of his day, because this people draw near with their words. And man, does that describe the American church today? We have a lot of big words about our Christian experience and so on, or, or commitment. But this is what he goes on to say, and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Mm. You know, that is describing a, the worship of a hypocrite. 
That's what that's describing is your mouth is saying one thing. You're putting out an image of being a certain type of person. You're communicating that. You're conveying that to everyone around you. You call yourself Christian, but you hold your heart back from me. That's what the Lord is saying. You withdraw your devotion to me. You're really, in your heart, devoted to other things. You're not devoted to me. And that's, man, you feel the pain in God's heart because he loves people. And he wants them to love him. And that's what Christianity is supposed to be all about. It's not just another form of religion. It is relationship with the Lord our God. And that relationship is proven in our affections, in our heart. So worship is about a loving God who wants us to love him in return. What would you say is the foundation of true worship? Well, Jesus defined it. And I love that he defines it to a pagan woman. <laughs> you know, he didn't tell the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. He didn't even tell his disciples. They were off in the city. He tells a Samaritan woman. And this woman had been married five times. I mean, she was not a very, not even a moral woman. And he said to her, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He's saying that true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and truth. And so, by inference, that means there are those who aren't worshiping in the spirit. They're worshiping in the flesh. And they're not worshiping out of a sincere love for God. They're insincere, which is what we just talked about. So, you know, the foundation of true worship is... To come before God, as I said earlier, in humility with very much in your heart, you are bowing down before the Lord. You are uh, recognizing his superiority. You're recognizing your sinfulness, your fallen nature, your puniness, and you're coming before him in that kind of humility, and in that humility, you are in the spirit of worship. And that's what happens at Pure Life Ministries. We, we teach the men this, and, you know, they're coming in at varying degrees, but they're coming into maybe many of them the first time in their lives what it really means to open your mouth and sing songs, and even in between the songs, expressing expressing your love and your devotion to God. That is worship. It's not just a simple matter of singing some songs that you've grown accustomed to or you kind of like the tune or something. It is a matter of coming before God and expressing love and adoration and reverence for Him. That's what true worship is really all about. I think you've given us a great foundation for worship and showing us why it's so valuable and how it helps men overcome their sexual sin. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, Jim. In addition to his work at Pure Life as Ministry Outreach Director, Nate Dancer also serves as a worship leader. He has a thoughtful and biblical perspective on the powerful impact of worship to aid a man in gaining freedom from sexual sin. He describes the form that worship services take here at our campus chapel and how God uses these different elements to affect change in men's lives. Nate, we're talking about worship and specifically the role of worship in helping a man gain freedom from pornography and sexual sin. And I've asked you here today because one of your roles at Pure Life is that of a worship leader. You lead in our worship services on both Sunday mornings and on our weekly meetings on Thursday nights. Now, Steve Gallagher has already laid a foundation for us by talking about the fact that God has put in every person 
the need and desire to worship him. He's told us why worship is important in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. He showed us from the Ten Commandments, uh, the command of God to worship him and the teaching of Jesus that God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Now, as a worship leader in our residential program here at Pure Life, I would like you to just walk us through some of the elements of a typical worship service and tell our listeners what we do and why we do it. Okay. Nate, tell us, how does a worship time always begin here at Pure Life? Well, the first thing that we always do is we spend at least 15 minutes, usually 30, sitting in silence before we worship or before we open God's Word. And what do we see as the value of that quiet time before a worship service? Well, I think it's twofold. For the students, these are men who have grown very accustomed to activity and entertainment and volume, in a kind of sense, being the the foundation of the church service. And so for them to discipline themselves to sit in silence before anything happens in the meeting is really good. I mean, number one, it just teaches self-discipline, but, you know, I mean, the presence of the Lord really should be revered, and we all instinctively know, I think, that when we get into the presence of someone who's greater than we are, our position should be of silence, waiting to hear what they would say, waiting to hear what matters to them, waiting to hear what we should do. And, I mean, if we stood in the presence of the, of the uh, President of the United States, we would certainly do that. How much more should we be doing that in the presence of the King of Kings mm-hmm. rather than just coming into his presence, telling him what we think and what we need and what we want him to do? Now, on the staff side, we have to have the same reverence for the presence of God, but we are also responsible to seek God for the work that he wants to do in the meeting. And so we spend time praying, reading the word, asking God to come in power, asking that the hearts of the men would be open, asking that we would be yielded vessels, etc., so that God is really able to accomplish in the meeting what he wants to accomplish. And Nate, often a staff member will open the service, and he will share something that he heard from the Lord. During his quiet time, he will open with a scripture that he was drawn to. How does the Lord use that in that particular worship service? Well, one of the things that I have grown to love about being part of the Pure Life staff is that every service is unique in the sense that God, being the leader and the director and omniscient, he knows what he wants to do in that meeting. And if you think about it, in every single one of our meetings, we have a lot of different people who are at a lot of different stages of their walks with God, and they need different things. Some of them need a word of encouragement. Some of them need enlightening in their heart. Some need a strong word of rebuke or a word of warning. And so they're all at different places in their personal walks. But not only that— Unique things have happened to them during the week, and sometimes God wants to speak specifically to a need that's arisen. And even beyond that, (laughs) this is amazing, God knows what he wants to do in them to fulfill his calling in their lives. So God has a ton on his plate in every meeting, and he's the only one who really can fulfill those things. So we believe as staff and as leaders of the the ministry that God is willing to work through us to accomplish all of those things if we would yield ourselves to his guidance and direction. So how does God use the person who opens the meeting? 
oftentimes what the Lord will do is he'll establish a theme in each meeting. And that theme might be worship, it might be our need to humble ourselves, it might be the importance of faith or the importance of trust. There, I mean, there are just an almost endless number of themes, and the person who gets up at the beginning may start, the, start that theme or maybe just open up the meeting and pray. Now, Nate, another element of our worship services is staff testimonies. A staff member will share a scripture. Uh, He'll give a brief testimony of how the Lord has worked in his life. Often he'll offer a brief prayer on uh, behalf of the congregation. What is the impact? What is the effect of the testimony on the life of the worshipers? Well, we have a very unique congregation. Mm -hmm. We have 75 guys and their visitors, and the men are here because they have been bound in the slavery of sexual sin, and the visitors are here because they love someone who has been bound in sexual sin. And we know from our own experience that it takes a great spiritual struggle to find freedom from sexual sin. It's not something that you just decide, okay, I'm going to get out of it, and here I go. It requires a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. It requires a lot of effort on the part of the Holy Spirit. It requires a lot of effort on our parts to yield to him and let him do his work. And for many, many of us, that process of trying to find victory can be very discouraging or confusing or uncertain. And so when our staff members get up and share, these men and the visitors are hearing not a a nice teaching from someone who's been theoretically trained in sexual sin. They're hearing from someone who's gone through the exact same process that this person is going to go through. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what happens in Hebrews 11 and 12. I love this because... Chapter 11 is all about the heroes of the faith. And so the author is telling these people, look, I want you to witness these people's lives and how they proved God's faithfulness. And then in chapter 12, he says, okay, since you are surrounded by this huge cloud of people who have witnessed the faithfulness and the goodness of God and his his unchanging promises, now I want you to do what they did, fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race that is set before you. That's exactly what our staff testimonies are doing. We get up, we witness about how God has dealt with us, about his goodness, about his faithfulness, his mercy, his love, his holiness, his justice, his purity, and then we tell them, now you do what we've done, you run your race. Obviously, we sing in worship. But anyone who's ever experienced a pure life service knows that we never do anything in a conventional way simply for its own sake. What is the value of singing songs in a worship service? Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, I I don't think there's any inherent value in singing songs, just like there was no inherent value in the Old Testament sacrifices. But we all, anyone who became addicted to sexual sin, we got that way because we loved it. We loved that sin. I mean, some people might push back and say, well, I don't love it now. You know, I I hate it. And I would say, well, uh, you hate the consequences, but you love the sin. Mm -hmm. And we genuinely were excited about watching people have sex or about having sex ourselves. And we would daydream about it. We would consider how to do it more. We would scheme about how we could make it more pleasurable and so on. And what really needs to happen ultimately is that anyone in sexual sin needs to truly begin to love Jesus. I mean, imagine if we really were as excited about Jesus as we have been about pornography. If we spent that much time and energy and affection on loving and worshiping Jesus, sin would just, it wouldn't be able to hold us. And so our hope during these worship times 
is that the Spirit of God will break through into these men's minds and into their hearts and give him a glimpse, give these men a glimpse of who Jesus really is, that they would begin to hunger and thirst for him the way they've hungered after sin, and they would really genuinely find that the Spirit of God pouring out the love of God into their hearts is the only thing that really will satisfy them. Because once they begin to taste that, then they're hungry for more. And then when sin offers its fleeting pleasures, they say, no, that I don't want that. I want to pursue this God who is pouring out his love into my heart. Now, there's another aspect of our worship service, and it happens during the praise and worship time. There's something that's going on between the songs that we sing, and we actually encourage the men to participate Mm -hmm. in this activity. Tell us what that is and tell us why we do it. Okay. Yeah, we spend a fair amount of time worshiping, not just in the songs, but in between the songs. Mm -hmm. And I I had an experience uh, probably about 15 years ago where I went to Nepal— And these believers did the exact same thing, and I've described it this way. During songs, they sang, but when the song ended, they started worshiping. And it was was unbelievable. It was like a, a fairly normal praise and worship time at any other church, but as soon as the music ended, that place exploded in praise and in worship. And it felt like it probably lasted at least five minutes. It may have been more. We do that here as well because it's one thing to sing along with everybody else during a song that you basically know by heart. It is another thing completely to actively worship Jesus from the heart without being told what to say or what to do. Right. And it takes effort. It takes a certain level of self-forgetfulness because we're all kind of self-conscious by nature. But if you think about what's happening in heaven, there is spontaneous, rapturous praise happening around the throne of God as they see him. And that should be happening in us as we become more accustomed to the atmosphere of God. Our hearts should be really, at all times, captured by the goodness of God. And that's what we're trying to get these men to do, is to say, let's get into the proper attitude that happens in the presence of God. When we really see him, what happens? Praise, because of how good he really is. And I sometimes, it's not always this way, but um, when we are all really genuinely opening our hearts before God in those times, it's better than any song that we could sing because we're all just kind of um, uniquely and specifically giving God the praise that he is due because of who he is to us. It's not the songs that someone else wrote. It's the song that's being written in our own hearts, and that's coming out to God. And it's, yeah, it's, it's more beautiful, I think, than any song that can be written. Nate, as we talk about this, it just occurs to me that particularly in Revelation 4 and 5, we have these wonderful pictures of what worship looks like in heaven. John is able to uh, see what is going on around the throne. He sees heavenly worship, and now we can see it in the Word of God. So the more we construct our worship life and our worship patterns around what we see in heaven in the Word of God, then the more we're worshiping him in the way that he wants to be worshiped. Mm -hmm. Now, as we wrap it up today, tell me why we worship the way we do. What is the truth that lies behind what we do? Well, Jim, I've been at Pure Life for 11 years, and so I've spent a lot of time around Pastor Steve and Kathy, and I know (laughs) beyond a shadow of a doubt their desire is that Jesus would be at the center Mm. of everything. 
And that's what you see in Revelation 4 and 5. Right. You see a throne, and everything is around the throne. All of the the focal point of everything is on God and on Jesus, whom he has glorified. That's right. And so that's what we want to do here. We want to lift him up and magnify him, because if we're going to be biblical Christians, then God is at the center, not men. Not our needs, not our issues, not our desires— his desires, his agenda, his loves, and the more we become adjusted to him, the more the more we function correctly, you know? I, I mean, really, sexual sin is a dethronement of God from his rightful place in our heart, and when we dethrone God, something else takes its place. That's right. Sin, self, and it binds us. It brings us into bondage. But when we begin to truly worship him, when we begin to fight to worship him, if I can say it that way, we are tearing sin and self off the throne of our heart, and then Jesus begins to ascend to his rightful place. And that's, you know, that's the, I think, probably the great battle and struggle for all of us in all of life is to enthrone Jesus in reality on his rightful place in our hearts. Nate, I want to thank you today for solid biblical answers that have real practical application for how we worship. Yeah, amen. I had a great time. Jordan Yoshimine is a senior leader here at Pure Life as assistant director of biblical counseling. He shares today from the Word of God and from his own personal experience the many things that God can do in the heart and life of a man who truly worships God with his whole heart and how God uses times of worship to set a man free. Jordan, I asked you to come in today to talk to our listeners about the value of worship and the role that worship plays in helping a man gain freedom from addiction to pornography and to sexual sin. And you've been here at Pure Life for some years now, and like all of our staff, you came through the residential program as a student. Uh, you have your own testimony about how the Lord used worship in your life. Now you're assistant director of counseling, you see firsthand the changes in men's lives as they encounter God in worship. In the lives of your own counselees, they tell you how God met them in worship services. Besides all that, your seat during worship services is on the platform, and so you have the distinct advantage of being able to see what's going on in the men during the worship services, and I think all this qualifies you in a unique way to speak about the role of worship in the lives of men seeking freedom from bondage to habitual sin. So talk to me, if you would, please, about what you've experienced and what you regularly see. How does God use worship in the lives of our men? Yeah, I uh, was an interesting topic when you emailed me about uh, doing a podcasts regarding worship, uh, my immediate thoughts went to worship in the church, worship uh, as evidence in the church today. And I was uh, grieved, I guess, a little bit on kind of what I had experienced before I came to Pure Life as far as worship was concerned. And so... Um, Worship at Pure Life Ministries, I believe, is what the Lord really intended for worship to be as far as worship, meaning the singing of praise music, uh, the testifying of uh, different people, members of the body uh, during that worship service. And it really kind of transformed my thinking about what singing praise songs and worship songs and testifying during a worship services or uh, people sharing s short testimonies. Um, it really has uh, been a revelation to me. Jordan, I see you've opened your Bible. Was there a passage of Scripture that you wanted to share with us today? 
we're, we're, we're biblical counselors, and so we're going to preach from the Word. So if I did not use a scripture in defining uh, kind of what worship services are like at Pure Life, I would be doing uh, the Lord a disservice, and I wouldn't be anchoring it in anything. I would just kind of be my own opinion. Mm-hmm. You'd be hearing my own opinion. So I'm going to anchor it in the Word and then and then kind of describe kind of what I've seen. So it's Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled, at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man with unclean lips. For I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. I mean, powerful, right? I mean, just just amazing. And that uh, passage really describes uh, one of the aspects of what happens during worship and what I believe the church um, is really intended for, so, uh, music, worship, and services. If you have a walk with God during the week, if you are seeking the Lord as our students are, they're required to spend 15 minutes in word, 15 minutes in prayer. They have homework. They are in Bible studies. They are in prayer groups. So they are in and they're at Pure Life, which is in itself, the place is full of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right. So throughout the week, they are immersed in the Word. They're immersed in prayer. They are practicing the presence of the Lord throughout the week. So when they come to service, their heart is kind of, you know, the the pump is primed, right, so to speak, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so when a song comes up that is kind of like this passage is saying, where they're being confronted with... um, with the holiness of the Lord, we're singing songs about the holiness of the Lord. Man, the Lord has an, a, a tremendous opportunity to use that song for a man to see, wow, this is how holy the Lord is, and this is my condition. This is who I am before a holy God. Man, boom, repentance. Boom, you know, just this undoing of the self-life. However, that would not be possible if the man was not inundating himself, immersing himself in the Word, in prayer, and all those things throughout the, uh, throughout the week. So if you look at the church today, music and worship, praise songs have become entertainment. Yeah. Right? So that's not what the Lord intended. Number one, he intended worship to glorify himself to bring glory to himself. But for us here at Pure Life, we're seeing the effect that a godly life, someone who's who's walking with the Lord, comes into service, sings a song, hears the song, the Holy Spirit comes through the song and does a work, a deep, deep work in bringing a man to repentance or bringing, shedding light on uh, just how merciful the Lord is, mm-hmm. or His holiness, right. or His lowliness, His character. One of the things that we pray for, and I know that this is part of your testimony. I know you've seen it in the lives of your men. We pray all the time that men will get a sight of God, that men will get a sight of Jesus, yeah. that men will get a sight of the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, Isaiah said... 
I saw the Lord. Yeah. And we're always praying that men will get a heavenly sight. Mm-hmm. How have you seen this uh, come true for you or for your men? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was taking notes and I was thinking, uh, interesting, the Lord, how the Lord will use something that happened while I was in the program and it's just stored away. And, and I've shared it with a few people, but really it was, I know where I was sitting in the chapel. I know the song. The song was called Knowing You. Mm-hmm. And as I was singing the song, the, the part last part of the chorus says, and I love you, Lord. And I just started weeping because for the first time in my life, that meant something. Mm. That truly, I, I could say without any hesitation that from the bottom of my heart, that was true. I truly loved the Lord. And um, that was a revelation. It was a revelation of where I had been and where I was now in that moment. And every time I hear that song, I am reminded, again, uh, how worship affects you. You know, you you sing some songs over a period of time. And what has happened with that song now is a spirit, what the Lord does with that song is a spirit of gratitude. Man, it's just like, man, I listen to that song, I sing that song, and I'm so grateful for that moment in time where the Lord revealed himself to me and said, Jordan, you really do love me. This is actually true in your life. And you can actually sing this with deep conviction and love for me. And man, it's just... Worship is amazing, and it does, when you are walking with the Lord and singing in the Spirit in an environment where the Holy Spirit is present, there is nothing like worship uh, to the Lord. Um, And then what the Lord is doing inside of you and giving you, like you said, that sight of who He is. His holiness, I think, is here in our chapel, we sing a lot about God, mm-hmm. about his holiness, not what God does for us, but really his character. And I really believe that those songs, the songs we choose, really allow the students to really see his holiness. Just, I mean, that is it. When we see God's holiness, we see ourselves before a holy God. And when we see ourselves before a holy God, we see ourselves rightly. Yes. And and we're saying, man, I am, you know, I am a man with unclean lips. Mm-hmm. I am a wretch. I am a sinner and in need of repentance. And so a lot of times during a worship service, you see men, because I'm up on the platform, as you said, you see men become undone. They're singing a song and they begin weeping. And and then you see them, and then an altar call comes. That same man comes up to the altar again in tears, and you see him on campus the next week, the next month, and he's a different person. Yeah. But it was that song again. All the stuff that led up to that service that happens throughout the week that brings, and then a song. God will use a song or someone testifying as a form of worship, and that man is just. The Lord uses all of that together, and the culmination is that song, that form of worship where he's singing. I don't know. Music has that effect sure. on people, right, where it really does something. It goes into people, and uh, they get a sight, and they're that's it. They're done. One of the things that we teach, of course, right out of the Scripture, is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads to a uh, godly sorrow mm-hmm. as opposed to the worldly sorrow that mm-hmm. they came in with and that godly sorrow leads to repentance mm-hmm. and repentance is the change that God is looking for. Yeah. Now, often that happens in the context of a worship service and we get to see it unfold right before our eyes. Yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, I mean, it really is an immense privilege um, you know, because Jim, I mean, realistically, you've been in ministry for how many years, decades, mm-hmm. and me growing up in the church, um, and not having witnessed this on a weekly basis, 
You know, we get to see that every week. Right. Every twice a week services and then, you know, Friday night services, um, even an accountability. You know, some of our Bible studies, the Lord, when we were playing worship music or or whatever, man, it is it is such a privilege to see men come to the end of themselves and into a, a walk with the Lord. And it's as, as simple as a song and as simple as a phrase from a song, you know, um, especially when we sing choruses and you sing them two or three times, that third chorus, you know, that's when it, the spirit really hits a person and the, the reality of what that chorus says, um, you know, you're my all, you're the best, you're my all, my righteousness, mm -hmm. and I love you, God. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing, right? I mean, that for me, just that did it, that undid me. Um, you know, you can, Revelation song, you know, there's just so many different songs that just, in Christ alone, I mean, just have had a tremendous impact on me. And it is such a privilege to, to see men come into uh, saving faith through, yeah. through worship, through worship songs, even before, I mean, honestly, our, our songs are before the sermon. And so it had nothing to do with what the pastor even said. Right. It's, it's just the Holy Spirit and using worship as a form of bringing a person into, into the kingdom. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Well, going back to our passage in Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord in light of his holiness. He is undone. He sees his uncleanness, his total depravity. But God didn't just show him his sin to leave him there. That's right. What happened after that? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing how um, God will use whatever means uh, possible in order to bring us to a place where we surrender our lives to yeah. him. And um, when we get a side of the Lord, and here's the thing, worship, we're just talking about one way that the Lord will do this. He does it in multiple other ways uh, here at the ministry and, in, and throughout the world. Uh, miracles or in the quietness of someone's room, uh, he brings us all to that place, whatever the means, to a place where we see our depravity and we see our need. And, and that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. I am a man with unclean lips, but God doesn't leave us there. He, he wants us to admit that. He does. He mm -hmm. requires us to admit we are sinners. We are destitute without you. But then he comes in in his mercy uh, and just says, okay, here you are now cleansed by, and really for us in the new covenant, it's the blood of the lamb. That's right. And we're forgiven, forgiven of our sins, our sins as far as, uh, as the east is from the west, so our transgressions are removed from us. Second Corinthians five seventeen. We are new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new thing, something new. A new creation has come. Um, we're dead. We're dead to our old selves. We, uh, uh, John three, Nicodemus, uh, born. We are born, truly born again. But it takes that sight of the Lord. That first part of Isaiah. We need to have that side of the Lord and see who we are before our holy God. And that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. He saw God's perfect holiness and who he was before a holy God. And he was he saw it was like, I'm nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm a sinner. There's I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I don't even deserve and God in his mercy said, Yeah, I come. Wow, what a amazing God. I come and I'm I'm offering you forgiveness and cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins. But now there's a responsibility, right? We, he's just not going to leave us there. All right, after his purification, after his sin was atoned for, he overheard God saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Talk to me about Isaiah's response. Yeah, we're called. You know, he asks us, okay, you know, 
what are we going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? And it's it's a call. It's it is Matthew twenty eight. Mm-hmm. It is kind of in in line with that. And he says, "Whom shall I send?" Right? Okay, you you've you've come into something. What are you going to do with it? And and Isaiah said, "Here I am. Send me." And I think that was a actually a theme for one of our conferences. But it is true. It is a call. Okay. I've seen what you've done for me, Lord. Now I want to return that mercy that you've given to me and go out and make disciples of all nations to multiply. Uh, God's mercy, God's saving faith is not ever for us alone. It's it's for us to multiply, to go out and and do the same for others in our homes, with our mar- with our wives, with our children, with our churches, with our community, uh, with our country with this world and and especially in these days and times uh, the call is going out uh, and I think a little bit and I don't know if this is going to make the cut but um, but I think the focus in our ministry has always been discipleship always been discipleship that has been the benchmark or the one of the pillars but it's there's a sense of urgency I think now with the staff that we are living in perilous times and we, you know, this isn't just about bringing a man into faith. It is this call yeah. into, okay, you, you know, talking to guys as, as they're getting ready to graduate, you know, you have a call on your life and, and a call to, to minister God's mercy uh, to others. And so what does that look like? Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I really do believe uh, more now than ever God's call is 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 shouting a little uh, louder at Pure Life Ministries for sure. It's a great passage of scripture, but thank you for showing us how this happens in um, the lives of our men and how it happened in your life as well. Thanks for coming in today. It's true, worship services at Pure Life look different here than in most churches around the country. But honestly, when I read in Paul's letter to the Corinthians how he instructed the church to conduct worship, our worship services are more like what I see reflected in Scripture than any other place I've ever been. And maybe as a church member, you don't have the opportunity or the authority to implement changes in the way your congregation does worship. Times of silent meditation, encouraging testimonies to the work of God in people's lives, joyous eruptions of praise between the songs and the like. But you might find ways of implementing these things on a personal level in your private times of worship. And perhaps in your local congregation, you can be part of beginning the conversation about how God can use times of worship to affect change in people's lives. That's all for today. We'll see you next time on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.